because we're going to do this in the coffee shop because you know bank holiday Sunday Sunday yeah. night everybody uh, has yeah. left London and uh, we I was so pleased that we got the invitation for you to come and I thought we'd do a little informal thing in the coffee shop and then all these people turned out so we come in here just yeah, for you I'm glad to hear that I'm <laughs> glad I'm loved uh, you know this is a short introduction you know usually they go on for 20 minutes with it and uh, one time I got introduced and uh, it was by Mike Iaconelli. Oh, yeah, and, I remember Mike. And Mike said, the length of an introduction usually denotes the significance of the person. The more important the person, the shorter the introduction. For instance, when the President of the United States speaks, the introduction is simply, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. He paused and he said, Tony Campolo was born February 25th, 1931. <laughs> So I, I just wanted to go straight in, and we're going to ask, we're going to ask you uh, guys a little bit later on if there are things that you want Tony to talk about, so be thinking about what would you like to hear Tony's view commentary on, because there's a chance to holler out any stuff like that as we go. But I thought we'd start with something not very controversial. What do you think of Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> well... I, I, I would hope with this crowd that that would not be controversial. <laughs> that uh, when somebody denigrates uh, people from Mexico uh, who are in the United States legally, let me just emphasize, we're talking about people who are in the country legally, who have, and said these people uh, tend to be rapists, murderers, and thieves, and then takes a deep breath and says, but some of them are decent, decent, decent people. You say, whoa, how can you say that? And it talks about women in the most sexist manner. And then it goes after Muslims, you know, and says, uh, we got to keep these people out of the country. Uh, the, uh, I mean, this, this sense of alienating the, the Muslim world. I, I have a friend, and you probably know him, George Verwer, uh, you know, Operation Mobilization. And he's a very, very fundamentalist guy. But he's scared to death of John, Donald Trump because the more he takes after Muslims, the more the workers for Operation Mobilization who are serving in Muslim countries are being threatened. They see America as an anti-Islamic nation. I know you've got the same kind of struggles here. But you begin to do that, and then you begin to get his whole attitudes towards protecting rich people. And, uh, you know, no, no empathy. There has not been a single word in his campaign about helping poor people. And we've got a big problem because I think that caring for the poor is one of the main messages of Jesus. If you go through the scripture and see how many times Jesus talks about the poor, as a matter of fact, the only description he gives of judgment day is how we cared for the poor. Yes, yeah, so the thing is this, just this morning... Um, on my Twitter account, I was just flicking through it, and there was a poll. I should know who it was taken by, but it said, it was a poll from America, and it said that 78% of evangelicals are going to vote Trump. And the reason is twofold, and you can predict it. You can predict what the reasons are. Uh, first of all, uh, the Republican Party is is very pro-life 
and the Democratic Party is very pro-choice. So many voters are one-issue voters, uh, voters, and I understand that. You know, this issue is such an overpowering issue in their minds that anybody that doesn't stand with them on this issue is forbidden. that you, we will have nothing to do with her. The other is gay marriage. And uh, uh, Hillary Clinton has been very supportive of gay and lesbians and transgendered people. Uh, she's very supportive of that whole community. And that makes her persona non grata in evangelical circles. In spite of the fact, here's the reality, in spite of the fact that when she was in the Senate, there was a Tuesday morning prayer meeting, early morning prayer meeting for senators. So far as I know, she was the only person who came to the prayer meeting without fail. Very much so. Very committed Christian, a member of a Methodist church in Chicago. Uh, she, I, I, of course, I know her very personally. And I know she maintains a very disciplined life in spiritual exercise. She reads the scriptures. She has a prayer life. When we talk, she talks about these things. I can ask her, what are you reading these days? So when uh, she got the uh, Democrat nomination, you prayed for her. I, I was the guy that, that prayed at the conclusion of that day, yes. Um, I had been asked to pray for, uh, at the convention, uh, and uh, I thought I would get a lot of criticism on it, but I didn't. Uh, and I really feel that the prayer was, you don't like to say, you, you know, I think the Spirit was guiding me. Uh, Peggy is absolutely convinced that the Spirit was guiding me. Peggy's my wife. wife. And uh, the reason was that, you know, I, I prayed the prayer that raised the concerns that we have. I prayed that this country and the leadership of this country would begin to address the needs of the poor, uh, that it would, in fact, uh, address the concerns of racism, sexism, homophobia. I went down the list of these things and just prayed and... The, very carefully crafted words so that they sounded pretty. And uh, then at the end, I did mention her only in one respect. And God, I want to thank you for Hillary Clinton because her candidacy is sending a message to girls all across our country and perhaps around the world that the glass ceiling that kept them from aspiring to certain leadership roles in society is being broken. That's the only thing I said. And whether you're for her or against her, you do have to admit that in the United States, the fact that she became the candidate of the Democratic Party was a major breakthrough for women in, in, in America, especially for uh, women who are Christians. Interestingly enough, I, I don't know why evangelicals don't raise serious questions. The first one is, if Jesus is concerned about the poor, what do you do with a billionaire who doesn't give anything to, to charity so far as we know? They've been begging him to release his income tax forms because every, president, every person who's ran for president has in fact done this. What do you do with your money? How much money do you make? And the reason I think, I'm just speculating, I think it will show that he hasn't done anything in, with his money that is charitable or Christian. And uh, his, his, 
his whole playing of the evangelical community is scary. He's had two gatherings, one in New York and one in New, York, in New Orleans, in which hundreds of evangelical preachers came to support him. I, I just, it, it bothers me. Uh, it bothers me in many ways. With somebody who is, uh, he, he wouldn't even condemn the Ku Klux Klan. I'm saying, where are evangelicals on this? Dealing with wealth, dealing with racism, dealing with, with uh, homophobia. De- I just don't know why. Hillary gets um, a lot of bad press here as well. So people talk here in the press all the time about it being a race to the bottom. That these, you know, and we hear Vox Pops saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't like Trump, but I don't like Hillary even worse. Yes, I hear that. And I have to ask the question, why? The political people in the United States are not necessarily prone to truthfulness. So there's an organization. That wouldn't happen over here. No, no, that, that doesn't happen here. We, we're totally transparent. But, but uh, you know, the question, a statement that's made in America is, how do you know a politician is lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> you know? But... Uh, uh, they, there's an organization that does truth fact. They check the statements that people made in their speeches, in their platforms, things that they have said. Of the 200 politicians that they surveyed, the Hillary Clinton came out number two out of the 200. Donald Trump came in dead last as a liar, and his lies are scary. For instance, one of his biggest statements was when 9-11 took place and the planes flew into the, Trump, uh, into the uh, World Trade buildings. You know, he's made this statement over and over again. Thousands of Muslims were dancing on the streets of, of Jersey City and there's no evidence of this at all. I mean, somebody should have had a camera, somebody should have taken a, a shot, nothing. And he, it's Hitler's tendency, if you say things often enough, that people will believe it. And he says it over and over again. And this kind of thing is just, you know, unconscionable. So, you know, why do they say, well, what about the emails? Well, the emails is that she said there was nothing in the emails that would, risk, that would threaten American uh, security, you know, that there was nothing in the State Department work that I did that was in those emails that would have in any way endangered America. So the FBI comes in and goes over 30,000 emails. There are three that are questionable. None of those had what should be across the top, namely, this is top secret material. None of that was on there. So three out of 30,000 are questionable. But I'm sure the press over here is saying, the emails, the emails, the emails. So I'm asking a very simple question. Do we really have to face the fact there were a bunch of male chauvinists, and what we're afraid of is a strong woman, a strong, powerful woman. When women become powerful, when they become the heads of corporations, when they run for president, when they become governors, the attitudes emerge that this person is somehow a B-I-T-C-H. You, I wouldn't say the word in this holy place, but you know what I'm talking about. 
And, and I, I look at that, and it was the same thing with Obama. You can't tell me that Obama has not faced a sea of racism as he's tried to implement his policies. As a matter of fact, the day he got elected, the leader of the Republican Party said, for the next four years, we're going to focus on one thing and one thing alone to make sure that this man fails. The country's in trouble. The head of the opposite party says, all we care about is bringing this man down instead of asking, in spite of our differences, how can we work together? And when you begin to listen to the rhetoric, you sense the racism. But wouldn't people just say, Tony, you're, you're in the pocket of the Democrats? Because you were, you were Bill's spiritual advisor. Well, it's worse than that. <laughs> I mean, it's, under your no, spiritual it's, guidance... It's, I don't know whether you know this. He struggled. I don't know whether you know this, but I won the primary election running in 1976 for the U.S. Congress. Did you know I was no, a congressional? No, actually I did. Yes, yeah. I, so, you know, and I ran as a Democrat, you know. Now, let me tell you why I'm a Democrat. I'm pro-life. You say, wait a minute, you just said that the Democratic Party was pro-choice. That's right, but I'm a sociologist. Remember that. Sociologists will point out that 72% of the abortions in America last year were economically driven. You have a poor woman who works for Walmart. Do you have Walmart over here? We equivalent. Yeah, but she gets minimum wage. In uh, your terms, that would be about four pounds 50 an hour. She's single, she gets pregnant. No, don't lecture me, she shouldn't have gotten pregnant, but she's pregnant. We have no health coverage for her. If she goes to the hospital, it's gonna cost her at least $5,000 because the hospital bills, you know you've been over America, are way out of line. No prenatal, no postnatal care. Working at a minimum wage. I mean, this woman is desperate. She's gonna have an abortion because economically she cannot survive. She's not making enough money to adequately pay for her own rent and food. And here she's pregnant. Uh, one of the cynics that I know uh, and the Democratic Party screaming at me thinking that being an evangelical I was a Republican he said the problem with you evangelicals is that you think that life begins at conception and ends at birth and what he meant by that is we're so anxious to protect the unborn but once the baby is born that's it we don't want anything to do with it look at what's going on the Republican Party refuses to raise the minimum wage refuses to provide health care, wants to do away with a little bit of health care that we do have with Obama. I mean, they are oppressing poor people like nobody's business. And I'm saying, if you are really pro-life, you should be for policies that will enable a poor woman who doesn't want to have an abortion to have the baby. And the statistics will show you that you would eliminate 72% of the abortions if you did those simple things. So that's one reason why I'm a Democrat. Can I ask you? I'm pro-life. Yeah. Uh, on that thing, it seems to me, at least I was going to say us, but I you know, speak for myself, that since Obama was elected, instead of this being a great breakthrough in terms of racial equality, 
America's been running backwards. The race problems seem to us, maybe it's just because of what gets played out in our media, in our newspapers, but it seems to be a deteriorating situation and deteriorating pretty fast. The, if you were to lead the, speak to the leaders of the African-American community in the United States, they would agree with you. And they find that whenever he tries to do something to help minority groups, uh, the response is, aha, there he goes. We got a black president, and all he cares about is black people. So he has leaned almost too far to taking care of white people's concerns and has, to a large degree, ignored black people's concerns. This is ironical, isn't it? But this is the reality. Your observations are correct. I, I think it's about time that we begin to really attack racism as, a, as Christians. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, Scythian nor barbarian, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I contend that racism is the great American sin. Uh, our common friend, uh, Jim Wallace, uh, has written a book called America's Original Sin. And this goes back, and things are worse today let me just say, uh, one of my former students has become very famous. Uh, his, name is, uh, his name is Brian Stevenson. I don't know whether you've picked up this. He's leading this crusade about, against capital punishment. I mean, he graduated from Eastern University, one of my students. He goes to Harvard Law School, graduates from the top of the class at Harvard Law School, African-American. He gets offered a job to start at a quarter of a million dollars on Wall Street. In the name of Jesus, he goes down to Montgomery, Alabama, the worst part in the world for racism. And he starts defending people on death row. He's gotten 150 people off of death row. 300 off of death row, 150 able to prove that they were innocent. Because when they had their day in court, you know how the system works. If you can't hire a good lawyer, you're in trouble. Poor people, he says, don't get a fair break in, in, in court. If they go to the electric chair, it's because they didn't have a good defense attorney. And then he smiled at me and he said, except in Montgomery, Alabama. Because in Montgomery, Alabama, I am the voice of the poor. I am the voice of the poor. I thought, Brian, you didn't sell out. You committed yourself to Christ. And as a lawyer you were going to take care of those who Jesus called the least of these. He's become internationally famous now. Every big university has given him an honorary doctorate. He's become a hero. Bishop Tutu says he is the American Mandela. But this guy is saying things are worse for black people than they were in the days of slavery. Because as long as people were slaves, as long as people were slaves, they were cared for because this was property. You didn't want your slave to die. You fed him, you clothed him, you took care of him. You didn't give him a good life, but you, you took care of him. What happens now is that black people are being arrested, particularly in southern states, at a rate that staggers the imagination. I mean, they represent 12% of the population. In the southern states, there's 60% of the people behind bars. Get that. Now, let me point out something. What happens is in those states, plantation owners can come and get these prisoners released to work their fields, only they're not going to be paid. They're going to be in chains working the fields. 
And these guys don't care whether these people live or die because if they die, they just get another guy out of jail. And he's saying that the black men in, in the southern states are worse off today than they were in the days of slavery. This kind of thing goes on. And let me just say, you're talking about a state in which most of the people would not only say they're Christians, but they're born-again Christians. That scares me. Well, I, th I, I don't know about you guys, but I think here in the UK we have um, a growing uh, racism problem. Um, the Brexit thing here, you know, it's driven, in my view, by people's fears, xenophobia, etc., etc. How do you think, perhaps... The whole Trump thing is part of the same global... Well, who's the guy that you just sent over? Uh, Nigel Farage. Yes. Do you know, we wish you'd have kept him, but he yeah, came but, back again. But isn't it interesting that Trump brings him over to help his campaign, you know, and say, see, here's the Brit, and he comes over there and saying uh, all of these same racist kinds of things that he said over here about immigrants and, and the same values are there. But you're right, Trump and that guy are together. Not, not because we said so, but because they said so. They, they basically stood side by side and said, we're for the same things. So what's our strategy on, on action around this? Well, there's several things we have to do. Uh, one of the things we have to do in the United States is deal with the race issue in, in very concrete ways. What I've been preaching in the United States is that every church should have a committee to meet black men when they are released from prison. Here's the figures. If you're 15 years of age in the United States, between this present moment and when you're 25 in that 10-year period, there's a 37% chance you'll be behind bars for a, at least a year. 37% of all black men in that bracket are going to end up behind bars. Scary. When they get out of jail, they can't get a job. They can't get jobs. They can't get any housing because nobody wants to rent to an ex-con. Nobody wants to hire an ex-con. And so the next statistic is this. If you're released from jail... Within five years, 90% of those who are released from jail are back in jail again. So it's a constant repetition over and over again. We're trying to get churches to say, would you go down and be at the prison gate? Go and visit them while they're still in prison. When they come out of prison, meet them at the prison gate and say, come with us. We've got a place for you to live. We've got somebody who's willing to hire you for a job. We're going to nurse you. We're going to minister to you. We're going to nurture you back into citizenship because Jesus in that 25th chapter of Matthew not only says to look for the poor and the oppressed but remember the prison you visited me while you were in prison the church has got to do that and I wonder if it needs to do that here in, in the United Kingdom that's the first breakthrough on the race issue I'm going to change the subject totally and then I'm, after I've asked you about this I've never heard you talk about this thing I'm going to ask you about now um, then we're going to just take some uh, subjects from you guys. But um, the thing is, Tony, I was selling you being here. I mean, I like to think that we're not in the coffee shop because of the way I sold you, you know. <laughs> but I said, this man, my friend, whom I've learned so much from over the years, he studied 
under Albert Einstein. And Are you impressed? I, well, uh, it, first of all, is it true? Well, what happened... I mean, I just, yes. you know, what I'm, I'm a preacher. I just heard it once. What happened, so. <laughs> what happened in the United States is the first year they had what they call a high school science fair. So the thousands, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands of high school kids across the country had projects. I built a Cassegrainian telescope. I won't go into the details, but I won second prize. All the people who won in various categories, I won in the physical sciences, had the privilege of being taken to the Academy of Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. And we were able to study under the superstars, and one of them was Big Al. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, I did get to study. And he, he, was a, he was a good teacher. He was a good teacher. So here's the thing. I would like you in the next 10 minutes to explain to us, in terms we can understand, the theory of special and general relativity. I will just take one aspect of the theory of relativity. Relativity says the faster you travel, the more time is compressed. Got that? So I put you in a rocket and sent you into outer space. And I had you traveling at 160,000 miles a second relative to the constant of the universe, the speed of light, and said, come back in 10 years. When you returned, you would be 10 years older. All the rest of us would be 20 years older. Traveling at that speed relative to us, our 20 years would be compressed into 10 years. If we got you traveling at 160,000 miles a second, uh, 170,000 miles a second, our 20 years would be compressed into one day of your time. If we got you traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second. We can't do that because as you approach the speed of light, your physical weight would increase geometrically towards infinity. I say that because don't let anybody ever tell you you're fat. Just say, I'm traveling too fast. That's what you need to tell them. <laughs> but if I could get you traveling at 186,000 miles a second, get this, all time would be compressed into one eternal now. There would be no passage of time at all, which is the biblical concept of God time. The name of God is what? I am that I am. God never was. God never will be. God needs to be encountered now. He cannot be known as a thing in the past or an object in the future. He can only be encountered or she can only be encountered here and now. When Jesus was asked about himself, remember what he said before Abraham was what? Why would he say, I am, for something that happened thousand, before Abraham was? He should have said if he was using good British grammar. Before Abraham was, I was. He doesn't say that. Before Abraham was, I am. That is to say, before there was ever an Abraham. That's present tense for me. All of time for Jesus and his divinity is squeezed into one eternal moment. Now, he was both a human and God simultaneously. When he's hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago, and I'm lying in bed in the morning doing my morning prayers, that's what I do it, and I confess my sins, I know something, that I am simultaneous with Jesus on the cross. You say, wait a minute, Campolo. There's 2,000 years separating you in your bed and Jesus on Calvary's Hill. 
according to relativity, those two moments are squeezed into the same moment, which means that when I confess my sins, Christ on Calvary empathizes with me. And there, was what, there is what psychologists would call transference. The, the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox Church has this in their liturgy. On the cross, he absorbs and becomes everything that we are in order that we might become everything that he is. What a view of salvation. Being saved is entering into an empathetic relationship with Christ on the cross. And if we will confess our sins, 1 John 1, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive us of our sins. We say, I believe in that. I say, I believe in And the next line, and he will cleanse us. I got good news. Because of what he did 2,000 years on the cross, if you trust in him, your sins are forgiven. But people, you need something more than forgiveness. You need cleansing. You can name the junk, the filth, the ugliness in your life. I mean, you know that. You need more than forgiveness. You need cleansing. And I can, in my prayer life, connect with Jesus on the cross because in his eternal now, he is simultaneous with me, even as I'm praying. Oh, here's another one. The Seventh-day Adventists say when you die, they put you in the grave and they say you're gonna, your soul will sleep until the trumpet sounds and the Lord returns. You know, And they've got biblical support, don't they? Uh, concerning those who sleep, says, says Paul. Writes that in Thessalonians, writes that in Corinthians. These people are sleeping and they say, see? Whereas the rest of us say, the minute you die, you're present with the Lord. Well, which is it? The answer is, we're both right. You see, if I die today and the second coming of Christ occurs 10 years from now in a terrestrial position, I'm in the grave for 10 years. But if that moment, the moment of the eschaton, the second coming, is compressed to the moment I die, then the moment I die, those 10 years do not exist. And lo, I am resurrected the moment I die. Furthermore, it says in the Bible, when Jesus was resurrected, we all were resurrected together with him. You say, what are you suggesting? He was resurrected 2,000 years ago. Let me say, the time separating your resurrection and my resurrection from his resurrection is no more, according to relativity. Time doesn't exist in a linear fashion if we're going to accept the doctrine of relativity. Let me give you another thing, one more thing. This is even more amazing. Relativity adds at least a fourth dimension to the universe. Time is a dimension of the universe. Uh, we always have three dimensions. There's a fourth dimension. Einstein, in this course we had, he made us read a little book by a guy named Abbott entitled Flatland. It was a science fiction book that was written, you know, like 80 years ago. And a guy from our world, three-dimensional world, suddenly wakes up in a two-dimensional world where everything's flat. In the two-dimensional world, the three-dimensional man is able to perform miracles. Here's a line. 
in the two-dimensional world, that's an insurmountable barrier. But if you're three-dimensional, you can do what? Step over the line. In the two-dimensional world, you can disappear simply by jumping up. You've moved out of that fat plane. I'm, you could go on. And all of these possibilities for things that people in Flatland would think are impossible would be way beyond the miraculous, but are possible if a three-dimensional... What if somebody shows up in our three-dimensional world who has access to the fourth dimension, perhaps in divinity, is able to comprehend time in a way that we cannot? Think of all the miracles. He could walk through walls. He could appear in a room while the door's being shut. He could suddenly disappear from people's... They're on the road. They're going to stop and have a meal. And suddenly he breaks some bread and he's gone. Think of all the miracles that could take place. In, in fact, when you deny the miraculous, you have to say your problem is simple. You are caught up in a pre-Einsteinian physics. Your concepts of time and space are outdated. We haven't fully grasped what relativity is about, but these few things will give you some idea as not only the social, but the theological possibilities that are tied up with the doctrine of relativity. There you go. Relativity in a nutshell. <laughs> Bet you never thought of that before. So, what would you like Tony to talk about? A few of you call out. What big subjects? You can... Sorry? Prison reform? Yeah. Gun control? And media. Okay. Prison reform, gun control, and media. Well, gun look, control. Are you going to talk about gun control first? You know... There is none in the States. There are more guns than there are people in the United States. Stop to think about that. And there is no control whatsoever. They set up these laws, and then they allow for gun shows to take place. So on a given day, you can go down to some big auditorium and they have all these guns for sale and you can walk out of there with a gun. You haven't been psychologically analyzed. People who are terrorists, people who are crazy, uh, people who are psychologically deranged, they can get guns. There's nothing to stop them. And, and, and some of these guns are ridiculous. For instance, you can buy a bazooka and the rockets that go into the bazooka. And these crazy guys are saying, well, we don't want to take hunting away from people. What are you going to do, shoot a, shoot a deer with a bazooka? I mean, come on. Yeah, I, I think that there's, there's the mindset. I was talking to my grandson about this. He said, you know, maybe we all have to get guns just to protect ourselves against all the people that have guns. You run into that kind of mentality. I don't think we're going to have gun control in the United States. And I think it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So um, why is it that Americans don't want to give up their guns? And so they look at another slaughter, another mass killing in another town, in another school, and yet they still press on. I've, last time I was in the States, I, um, I um, met a guy who I was told was a fantastic fundraiser. And um, I went along to meet him. We sat down. He told me how much money he had raised. That, but then it turned out that he w was 
raising them for the NFA. NRA, yeah, NFA, NRA. So, um, so, you know, I said to him, anyone could raise money for that cause here in the States. And he said, yeah. He said, it's easy. You just, everyone wants to give you money not everyone. to keep their guns. No, not everyone. Studies that have been done on American attitudes towards guns indicate that well over 90%, maybe one, 91, 92% of Americans say we need some form of gun control. Some form. You say, well, then why doesn't it happen? Because the NRA raises more money than all the other fundraising organizations that are supporting political candidates together. I mean, we're talking in billions of dollars. And they don't fund candidates. They use the money to run destructive ads on any candidate that opposes them. You wonder why people think that Hillary Clinton is such a bad person? One of the reasons is the NRA has spent hundreds of millions of dollars for ads on television to portray her in the meanest, ugliest form. She told me that when I see myself on television, I don't even like me. <laughs> so that's what happens. So why, why is this such a big thing? So in the end, if you're running for office, the one thing you can't do is come out in support of gun control or the NL, NRA will destroy you. And this is part of the reason why Hillary Clinton who ought to be a shoo-in. She is the most qualified person to ever run for the presidency. Served as Secretary of State. She served as a senator. She ran nonprofit foundations. She was a lawyer. She's the most qualified person we've ever had run for the office. But the negativism through the ads on television, through groups like the NRA, will in fact be used against her. But why is it that the American population seems to be so unable to hear any other voice on this. I mean, it's an incredible thing, isn't it? So it's got to be something deep in the American psyche somehow. Well, we still have a frontier mentality. You know, we, we, we are people of the frontier. We, it was 100 years ago we were killing in Native Americans. Uh, and, and we're a violent people. Uh, there's no question. When you look at the murder rate in the United States, it's so... I don't know, you're right, there is something about the American psyche, and I haven't quite discerned it, and I know the sociologists who have studied this and they haven't discerned it, there is something about the American people. Gun control is a very serious problem, and I don't see any, any sign that we're gonna resolve this, because even people who want gun control, who are running for office, will not dare come out against the NRA and saying anything about gun control, because they know that they will be overwhelmed with negative ads the next time they run for office. It's a very dire situation, and it's very, very sad indeed. One of uh, the, my former students, who's been over here a lot to speak, Shane Claiborne, mm. um, has been working hard on gun control. And we've gotten, there's stores all over Philadelphia where you can just walk in and buy a gun. And we put people and we pick at the stores. So we're trying to do something, but we're not really accomplishing very much. Now, what was the other issue? Well, you, prison reform. You know, here, in actual fact, I've just done jury service for the last two weeks at the Old Bailey. Myself, I was on a jury. You know, a clergyman didn't used to be allowed to do this, but they lifted the thing, and so I had to go, and I sat through a, uh, a big case uh, here um, 
and was made the foreman of the jury and all this kind of thing. But what kind of hit me again as I was watching what was going on and talked to a lot of people there is we in this country constantly put people away. Our prisons are full. They've never been fuller. We're constantly talking about what we do about that. Do we have prison ships? Do we build more prisons, et cetera, et cetera? And the truth is that the, the government minister here responsible for all this is called the... Uh, uh, is in, he's um, in charge of the Justice Department. And um, I had lunch with a guy called Chris Grayling, and who until recently was in charge of justice. And um, Chris Grayling said to me, um, in conversation about whether Oasis gets involved in some kind of um, rehabilitation work uh, in this area, he said to me that it costs five times as much to put a young person into a detention centre up to the age of 18, five times as much to put them into that detention centre than it would do to send them to Eton. Eton is our most yes, expensive, yes. you know, independent private school uh, in the country. Five times as much to put them into a detention centre for a year than to send them to Eton. And yet the reoffending rate within 18 months, with, within a year, is, I think, 78%. And I said to him, Chris, if you measured it across 18 months, it'd probably be 98%. So prison does not work for us here. And it's not working for you in the States either. No, it's not. It's not working anywhere uh, because prisons do not cure criminals. They turn people into criminals, uh, that they get hardened and they learn about crime and, and they're treated in a way. And there's a concept in sociology called the looking glass self. What you think of yourself is determined on what the significant people around you think of you. Let me repeat that. What you think of yourself is determined by what the significant people around you think of you. That's not even up for discussion. That's reality. If your mother and father think you're trash, you'll think yourself trash. The significant people around you, you go to prison and you are defined, it's called definition of self, you're defined as a criminal. If for day after day, for five years, you're defined as a criminal, that's the way you understand yourself. You're not simply a guy who committed a crime, you are now a criminal. This is a definition of self. And once that definition is established, you will in fact behave according to that definition of self. That's one of the great things about becoming a Christian. If any man, any woman is in Christ, that person becomes a new creation. The old things, the old definitions are done away. Behold, all things become new. I really believe that one of the things that has to happen to people in prison, I know this is going to sound so evangelical, which it is, is there isn't much hope unless they come into a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, let me just give you the statistics on that. You talked about this high rate of residual over and over again. Chuck Colson and his uh, prison fellowship group, they end up with like 
10 to 11% of repeats. Almost 90% of the people who in prison come to know Christ and get in Bible studies in Christ and are redefined as Christians and begin to see themselves as followers of Jesus rather than as criminals. That's new self-definition changes them. And you can statistically validate this. Another thing is that our political system is so corrupt in the United States because one of the ways you can get elected is promising to go hard on crime. Does that work over here? I'm, I'm going to go hard on crime. Bill Clinton, my friend, when he was president, passed this law of three strikes and you're out. That is, three times you're caught, you're in prison now for the rest of your life. So what happens is a kid smokes a marijuana cigarette. We have cases, here, here's what happens. A kid urinates in an, in an alley. He gets arrested. He's a black kid. We're in Alabama. He gets arrested. A month later, he's out, smokes a, a, a weed. He's arrested again. Third time, he might, in fact, shoplift. He gets arrested again. That's it. He's in prison for the rest of his life. This is my friend, Bill Clinton. He's getting a lot of static now from black people who said, we thought you were our friend. This is what you've done to our young people. I mean, let me just say, if you were to go to the prisons in Pennsylvania right now, approximately 27% of all those who are in prison are in prison for smoking marijuana. Now, I think smoking marijuana is not a good thing. But do you know anybody who died from smoking marijuana? Let me ask another question. Do you know anybody who died of smoking cigarettes? Question, why are cigarettes legal and marijuana illegal? Answer, because there are billions of dollars behind the cigarette industry. We have the best laws that money can buy. This is the reality. But, you know, when they put people in jail for marijuana, when you get arrested, if you're a white kid, you get arrested, you're going to be out on the street within an hour. Why? Because your family probably has the $5,000 to put up for bail. If you're a black kid from a poor family, and most of them are, and you get arrested for marijuana, you're going to be in prison for six months because that's how long it will take for the case to come up in court, at least six months. So you're, you're in prison not because you smoke marijuana, but because you didn't have the money to pay bail. The bail system is evil. So here's what happens. You, you get these laws passed, and I'm saying, you're putting kids in jail for smoking marijuana? The last three presidents of the United States all confessed that when they were teenagers, they smoked marijuana. I mean, that probably got over here in the news, didn't it? It did. You know, Obama said, yeah, when I was in college, I, I would smoke marijuana. Uh, you know, and uh, Bush, the Republican, yeah, I smoked marijuana. <laughs> Clinton, yeah, I smoked marijuana. I mean, what are we talking about here? If you're, when you're rich, you don't go to jail. When you're poor, you do go to jail. And jail hardens people because it leads them into a new definition of self. And that definition of self 
can only be counteracted if they are redefined in new categories. So how do we climb out of this bad cycle, downward cycle we got into? Well, there isn't a prison around that will not admit that a well-balanced Christian evangelistic outreach into the prisons will have an incredible effect. What's happened is that the only people in America, I don't know what's going on here, the only people in America that are reaching into the prisons with significant numbers and with great effectiveness are the Muslims. If you were to ask where the black Muslim movement comes from, it's totally black men in prison and these people come and, and they, they show concern and they minister to these people. And so for every Christian that comes in, and when we go in, we want to do only one thing. You know what we want? We want the wardens to get all the jailbirds in one room. And then we want to get up and preach to them. Whereas the Muslim comes in and on a personal one-to-one -one basis shares his faith, shows some concern, shows some love, promises the young man, when he gets out of prison, I'll be there at the gate waiting for you. It can be done, but we've got to stop being a lazy people. We started this movement, as you know, called the Red Letter Christian Movement because we didn't want to call ourselves evangelicals anymore. He said, why not? Don't you believe in the Apostles' Creed? Yes. Don't you have a high view of Scripture, believing that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you not believe in the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed? Yes. Then why don't you want to call yourself an evangelical? The answer is, in the United States, I don't know what it is here. In the United States, you tell, if I go to Harvard to speak or Stanford to speak, and I am introduced as an evangelical, the flags go up. First of all, I'm going to get picketed by the gays. I'm going to get picketed by the feminist. I mean, I'm in trouble. And I'm, I'm not anti-gay. And I'm not anti-feminist. But to be evangelical is to have this label. So we came up with a new title. I, I have my wristband on. It says, I'm a red-letter Christian. See? Red-letter Christian. Which means... We are people who take the words of Jesus seriously. How can evangelicals, who over 80% support capital punishment, claim they're followers of Jesus when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. He did say that, you know. Blessed <laughs> are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And I had one, one student say, I wonder how Jesus would have handled a capital crime. He, we don't know how he would. The answer is, of course we do. They brought to him a woman caught in adultery, a capital crime. They were about to have her stoned. And in those days, that meant having rocks thrown at you. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that. <laughs> you know, I saw somebody here when I said, you get stoned. You go, wow. <laughs> get this. She's dragged before Jesus. And they remind her what the law requires, that she be stoned to death, capital crime. What does Jesus do about capital crime? He forgives the woman, tells her to sin no more, and sends her on her his way, on her way. Is this not how Jesus handled capital, a capital crime? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How any evangelical who, you know what? We get so caught up in arguing about Paul's theology that we don't pay attention to those red letters of the Bible, which is a lifestyle. 
When Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant we shouldn't kill them. <laughs> so much for guns. Let me stop there. So I wanted to pick you up on something you said, Tony, because you said, when I, uh, when I stand up and people know I'm an evangelical, they assume I'm anti-gay, um, et cetera, et cetera. I remember driving with you just a few years ago. Um, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, this is true. Uh, Tony arrived in this country with Peggy, his wife. Peggy, um, Tony uh, would say, this is where you say, say isn't it? Peggy, uh, Tony's wife, only has one talk. It's a great talk. <laughs> Which she has done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It's a great talk, but she's only got one talk. It was Peggy on the phone uh, just then that I was talking yeah. to with Tony, because she can't be here in the, this country. And her one talk, what is it? It's on gay marriage and on gays and how the church has to change its position on gays. Exactly. So Peggy has preached this literally preached this one talk for years. That's right. And I was on the other side of the issue. Yeah, so what happens is, a few years back, I, get it, I go to pick Tony up with Peggy, with Cornelia, my wife. We drive out, Cornelia and I, to the airport, pick Tony and Peggy up from Heathrow. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Peggy climbs in the back with Cornelia, who's here, and Tony climbs in the front with me. It's after I have made my statements... Uh, for the inclusion of LGBT people, and I'm in the middle of being hammered by every day of my life. So, uh, so Peggy sits in the back of the car with Tony in the front. We've we've not even come out of the um, you know the car park, you know the twirly thing. <laughs> We're going down the twirly thing, and Peggy says at the top of her voice to Cornelia, she's talking to Corny. But she wants me to hear yeah, this. Yeah, because they're just chatting in the back. But at the top of her voice in the car, she says, Cornelia, my wife, she says, you must be so proud to have a husband <laughs> who's willing to stand up and say what he really thinks. She said, I'm, I'm so proud of your husband. And <laughs> I remember her saying... She said, the only person more proud of your husband, Cornelia, in the whole world than I am must be Jesus. <laughs> and then she said, I'm praying for the day when I might be able to say, I'm married to a husband who has the courage to stand up and say what he really thinks. <laughs> you remember that? How could I forget? <laughs> so yeah. what happened? Where did you find your courage? Well... It wasn't anything that I had read or any new interpretation. First of all, I have to say, the clobber passages. If, if you don't know anything about the struggle on the gay movement, there are about six verses of scripture that the evangelical community uses to condemn gays and gay marriage, specifically. And you say, well, don't you believe the Bible's infallible? And my answer is yes. However, little by little, I came to the awareness that my interpretation of those verses was not infallible. That there were ways of reading those verses that were as respectful of the authority of Scripture as anything you can imagine. I could go down every one of them, which we're not going to do right now, and point out, yeah, my evangelical background led me to interpret these verses one way, but they could be interpreted another way. The one that was most obvious, and I will deal with that one because it's the one that's most often used, 
is Romans 1. If you read the passage, it goes like this. And they take the image of the incorruptible God and transform him into an image like an incorruptible man, unto four-footed beasts, birds of the air, and they end up worshiping the creatures rather than the creator. Therefore, God gives them up to all kinds of uncleanness, men turning from their natural affections to homosexual behavior, women turning from their natural affections to homosexual behavior. And so the question has to be raised. Is Paul condemning a relationship between two people who love each other, want to make a lifetime commitment, edify each other, build each other up in the faith? Is he condemning that? Or is he condemning the evil practices that were associated with idolatry? In the city of Corinth, the deity that was worshipped by the city was a deity uh, who was uh, Aphrodite. And she had two sons. And one of them was named Hermas, from which we get the word hermaphrodite, because he had the organs of both sexes. And if you wanted to become a child of God, in this case, you know, Aphrodite, then you went to the temple, and the temple in Corinth had these little rooms lined up both sides of the sanctuary. And you would go in one of these rooms, and if you were a homosexual, you would have sex with a man. And if you were a woman, you went and had sex with a woman. And then I read it carefully. And it's not talking about homosexual people. It's saying they give up their natural affections. I got to tell you, I'm a heterosexual. My natural affection is not homosexual. My natural affection is, hom is, is not homosexual, it's heterosexual. So the Bible is condemning heterosexual men and women who in the worship of Aphrodite commit obscene acts of sexual immorality. That's what he's condemning. He's not condemning the loving relationship between two people. Now, here's what really changed me. I thought of my own life. And if I was, I was asked on a television show, uh, of all the things that have helped you as a Christian and nurtured you as a believer, what has been the most important? You know, was it some great guru, some great... And I had to say, the person who has influenced my life the most for Christ in the kingdom has been my wife. She, is, she corrects me. She prays for me. She supports me. I got to tell you, my life would be a mess without her, and I would not be where I am today in serving Christ if it was not for Peggy. Do you know, the funny thing, that's what she said to me as well. She said, Tony's mess, life would be a mess without me. <laughs> <laughs> I think she would say that too. But the reality is, if I believe that's what marriage did for me, then how can I turn around and deny marriage to gay couples, lesbian couples, if marriage is such a wonderful relationship. Up until I changed my position, I said, uh, nobody, ch first of all, I knew as a sociologist, what all sociologists knows, point number one. Nobody knows what causes a homosexual orientation. Those who say it's inborn, 
They don't know what they're talking about. There's not enough empirical evidence to support it. Those who say it's having poor parental identification, many television and radio evangelists say, you know, the boy has an uh, absent or weak father and he identifies with his mother and it's that faulty parental identification. That is the worst thing I've ever heard. Camden, New Jersey, 94% of the children born in Camden, New Jersey, it's the worst city in America, 94% of the children that were born in this city of 100,000 were born out of wedlock. If not having a strong male presence in the home makes you into a gay, Camden ought to be the gay capital of the world. It's pretty obvious. Nobody knows what causes a homosexual orientation. Secondly, I'm not saying never, but I've got to say, I've interviewed hundreds of gay men as a sociologist who are Christian men who wanted to change, who prayed, who went through counseling, who did all the things that you're supposed to do if you're going to change. Nobody changes. So what am I doing these people to? You're gay? Yeah, I'm gay. And I was saying, you're going to have to remain celibate. What that basically meant is you're going to live alone in an apartment and one day you're going to drop dead. And it'll be four days before they get the smell of your body and come in and carry you away. Do I have a right, living as I do, a comfortable life with a loving wife who supports, who encourages, and as your story indicates, corrects? <laughs> Can I say what has blessed me and helped me and nurtured me in the faith? I'm going to deny that to my gay brothers and my lesbian sisters and say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to live solitary lives because that's just the way I have been interpreting the Bible. Mm -hmm. So changing had a lot more to do with my, own, with my own life. When I read your statement, I had the awareness that in your case, working in this church, you have come to know many gay couples and you saw the validity of their relationship, and you saw that their relationships were not harmful but helpful. So you changed your mind for that reason. I changed my mind because, because I started thinking about what marriage was about. I think, um, I, I would say this, Tony, I think where we got to in this country is the church is beginning to have a discussion around the inclusion of of LGBT people, which is fantastic. So churches are saying, you know, we're good because we're quite inclusive. We're good because we let you be part of our church. We're good because we let you take part even or whatever. But I still think it's the wrong discussion, really. It's, this is for you to talk about, uh, not me. You know, I, listen. I think that instead of tolerating people who are LGBT, or tolerating people of a different race or whatever, or even accepting people who are LGBT or who are of a different ethnic group. The church's task is to celebrate, not accept. I think acceptance falls short, and I think that celebration, the celebration of each individual made as they are by God in his image is where we've got to get to somehow. Well, one thing that we have to admit, 
that gay people seem to have artistic talents that heterosexuals don't have. If you were to get rid of all the gays on Broadway or who are acting on the West End in the theater, most of the theaters would close down. Secondly, and this is Bill Gaither, now there is the leading evangelical, you know. Bill Gaither said to me personally, he said if we got rid of all the gays in the church, half of the music programs in America would close down in the churches. And we know that. Church after church, where the preacher's up there preaching against gays, the organist is over there, grinning his teeth, afraid to come out because he knows what will happen to him if he announces who he is. So we, that's your point. Yeah, These people are there. They have a wonderful gift to contribute. So why not? And we've got to get beyond, for me, the point where it's an issue at all. What I would say, I'd be interested in your comment on this, that that, uh, another issue, as I see it, is the church has got stuck on the gay-straight issue, which is that kind of binary issue, isn't it? But actually, um, what we've not faced up to or begun to deal with yet that's clearly evident in society is there are many different uh, sexualities and a kind of gender fluidity as well. So our whole, you know, my critique is that with the invention, I would say, Hollywood has had a huge part to play in creating those stereotypes, you know, the kind of real He-Man guy with the kind of rigid chin and, you know, Gillette advert, shaver type thing. So that's what a man looks like. And a woman, you know, uh, again, at, at the other end, and, and you're either a real man, that's a real Christian man, or a real woman who's really feminine. And the reality is if, uh, it, well, the reality is that that's not the reality, is it? And it never has been the rea- reality. So we've, we've become more gender and sexuality stereotyped in our society than the Greeks, for instance, ever were, and we've got to get away from that. Is that making it too serious a conversation? Here's what needs to be added. Uh, The Kinsey report has been largely discounted, and many errors in that report. Freud has been seriously questioned. The two things that have survived the onslaught against Kinsey and against Freud is the idea that sexuality is a continuum. You said it, we're binary. You're either male or you're female. The truth is, none of us are either completely male or completely female. For instance, there are the primary traits. When you're born, the doctor holds you up and looks. And your primary organ is, defines your sexuality. But there are 123 secondary sexual traits. Voice, voice box, the way your arms hang. Yeah, bone structure. Bone structure. You're getting, uh, you get uh, hair distribution. I mean, your hair is very, very, well, you're not as masculine as I am. (laughs) (laughs) Here's one that I always love to do with my students. I don't know whether you know this. You can all run the test on yourself to see how much testosterone you have in your system. Get your hand up, see? If this finger here is shorter than this finger here, yeah. 
then you have high levels of testosterone in your bloodstream. Hang on, everybody this, do that one. This, this one. Trust me, you can believe everything Tony says. So that's <laughs> this one, your index finger, yeah. should be shorter than this finger. Yep. Do you make it? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you got have, a lot yeah. of testosterone. Hey. <laughs> but let me just say, at least a third of you will fail the test. Hands up who's just discovered something about themselves that they didn't about, know when they uh, came uh, in. About, <laughs> now, for those women, for those women that came out with a short index fingers, would you raise your hands? Let me break it. <laughs> they are the most sexually forward people in the society. They are the sexually driven women in this group. Yes. And, and here's... Uh, my students love this because that, they say, from now on, when I go out on a date, the first, everybody else is going to look at her face and her figure. I'm going to check out her fingers. That's what I'm going to do. But this is reality. This is sociology. This so is let's just rerun that test for all the single people in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can't you just see a guy coming home and say, oh, Dad, did I meet this wonderful girl? She had this incredibly short index finger, you know. <laughs> But we all have secondary sexual traits that belong to the opposite sex. If you didn't come out right, don't sweat it. Nobody comes out right on all the traits. Nobody does. There is no such thing as a pure male or a pure female. We are all somewhere along that continuum. And that was your point, that uh, we learned that sex is a lot more amorphous. So how do you think the church is really going to get there on this? Because uh, this is my thought. I don't think I've said this. At all, but the big fear that I have in this country is I think that the church is alienating itself from it from twenty somethings really fast. You know, so do you know for my kids um, who are in their late twenties and early thirties now, the point the the, the uh, who are all very committed Christians, the idea that because of your sexuality you might not be acceptable to God is absolutely bizarre. But the truth is, that is what the church as a whole is still teaching in this country and in the States. And my fear is this, that what we're doing is we're alienating the teens and the 20-somethings right now at a, a very fast, radical rate. And what church leaders haven't woken up to is that that 20-something in 20 years' time is going to be running the treasury, are going to be running the big businesses, are going to be running society... And their embedded um, rejection of the church is going to lead us to place, well, we're traveling to a place that we don't want to go to. So I think that we're inheriting a future that we really don't want. I'm not as pessimistic for this reason. You said it well. You said there's a big divide between young people and older people. Every study that's done on this issue shows that young people feel very differently about this than older people, primarily because so many of their friends have come out of the closet, which never happened when I was growing up. And so they know these wonderful friends from school and from sports, and gee, that's a neat guy, and he's, he's gay, or she's a wonderful person, and I like her. And so their attitudes have softened. I teach at Eastern University, which is a very, very evangelical school, and her student body is overwhelmingly evangelical, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of evangelical kids. If you were to take a survey at Eastern, which is very evangelical, you would probably find that it's about somewhere around 40, uh, 
to 60% would say, we're opposed to gay marriage. The rest would be in favor of gay marriage. You say, well, what's the point? The point is that if you ask them the next question, they would say this, but we don't understand why the church is making such a big deal out of this. I mean, so people, you know, so I don't think gay marriage is a good thing, but is, is that what determines whether somebody's a Christian? Does that become the basis on which we throw people out of the church? And somebody's going to say, well, yes, because the Bible says, well, people, suppose we get rid of all the people who are divorced and remarried from the church. Think about that. In the United States, we'd lose at least a third of our members if we got rid of all the divorced and remarried people. Jesus never says anything about gay marriage. He does say something very specific about divorced people being remarried. Don't get me wrong. I believe in grace. I believe that some marriages are so destructive, the most blessed thing that a person can do is get out of that marriage or else it will destroy that person. So I'm, I'm, I'm the grace guy on this issue. But if you're going to be gracious about divorce and remarriage, why aren't you gracious about gay people? And the, the church has been wrong. You, in your statement, you made the point that the church was wrong. Go back. You didn't go back far enough. The earliest divisive issue in the church was whether or not men had to be circumcised before they could become church members. I don't know about you. But if... <laughs> I don't know about you guys here, but if they told you, you want to be part of this church? We got a little thing we got to do to you. Jeez, I wonder how many of you say, I think I'll become a Buddhist. You know, I, that's well, the first one. That we was, actually run a test when, before people <laughs> come through. <you> know? <laughs> Secondly, the next argument was whether or not we would be able to eat meat that was offered to idols. Because it was really less expensive. And people were buying it and they were having a good meal on this meat. Can you imagine, hey, we can't have that person in the church. He eats meat that was offered to idols. It looks stupid looking back on it. And that's, they were the divisive issues in the early church. You move ahead and you come to the Reformation. The issue was baptism. The word and the baptism. If you got baptized as an adult, they put you to death. They burned you at the stake. You know, I often wonder why Baptists are so thrilled with Reformation Sunday, celebrating <laughs> Luther. Do you know what he did to Baptists? Yeah, I do. Do you know how many yeah. of them he had killed? We don't even talk about this on Reformation Sunday. Baptism was a defining issue. Now, I'm a Baptist, and, you know, and I'm not angry. I mean, I bap you baptize your way, I baptize his way, and it all, you know, <laughs> and it all works out well. But... The idea, if they came to me and said, if you get baptized by immersion, we're going to burn you at the stake, I say, hey, sprinkle me, sprinkle me. <laughs> uh, it becomes a non-issue. You move ahead and you run into uh, the, uh, 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 slavery. I mean, this was such a major issue among Christians in the United States that every major denomination split right down the middle. And some of them haven't been reconciled yet. The Southern Baptists didn't apologize for slavery until four years ago. Whoa, that's what evangelicalism is about. Well, we're not ready to say we're sorry for slavery. What? <laughs> I mean, we face, got to face who we are. And so that became an issue. And then it was whether women could be clergy. And, and, and for that matter, even whether or not women should be equal to men in the family. I mean, we had these arguments and they divide the church and then we move beyond them and we look at them in rearview mirror and we say, how could we have made those statements 
How could we have taken those positions? I got to tell you one thing. Paul said it well. Listen to his words. I'm confused about a lot of stuff I am, but I'm with the Apostle Paul who says, but this one thing I know. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful statement? I'm not sure about a lot of stuff. But this one thing I know, Christ and him crucified. He's my Savior. He's my resurrected Lord. I sense his presence in my life. In prayer, I surrender, and I feel him invading my being. Well, I'm going to ask you about one last thing, uh, Tony, uh, and then we're going to finish. But it, it's simply this. This morning, you were preaching north of the river, and you were talking about animal welfare. And actually, we're holding a conference here. Well, in actual fact, Daryl, who sat right there, who runs a charity uh, around animal welfare. Uh, Daryl is part of the church. He's running a conference next year. And you can pick up leaflets about it. March on 18th. March 18th, next year. It's about animal welfare, and you are the headline speaker. We have not developed a theology of marriage, first of all. Before you can answer the question, do you believe in gay marriage, talk to people what, about what they think marriage is. We've never really spoken with clarity, nor have we developed a theology of animals. If you read the book of Genesis, before woman was ever created, God created the animals to bring fellowship to the human race. Secondly, in the Psalms particularly, but elsewhere, you learn that the animals were created to worship God. I know that strikes people as strange. St. Francis of Assisi understood that. We all know that he preached to the birds. We never asked what he said to them. We know what he said to them because St. Bonaventure, his best friend, recorded his prayers to the birds. And his messages to the birds was chirp unto the Lord. Well, all these new worship songs, we, we say to the hills, sing unto the Lord. Come on. If a hill's going to sing to the Lord, can't a bird do it? You know. You go through the 148th Psalm over and over again. It calls upon the animals to sing praises to God. That is crucial. So if we wipe out a species of animals, we've silenced a hymn that was created to worship God. It specifically says that the Leviathan of the Deep, which was the way they talked about whales, Sing hymns of praise to God. You say, Campolo, are you telling me that, it, that whales sing? You bet they do. As a matter of fact, there are musicians who record the music. And you know what they found? That they create a whole new set of songs every year. I mean, they're prolific. And they're singing. And if there were no humans on this planet, there would still be a reason for there to be whales and birds and planes, uh, and planes. <laughs> I don't think there is a reason to have planes. But there would be birds, and there would be sheep, and there would be cows, because St. Francis has it right. The scriptures call upon all these creatures to worship God. And you do too. Don't tell me you don't. If you sing the doxology, let me go over the words with you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him what? Which creatures? All creatures. Not just human beings, 
all creatures here below. The hymns always get it before the theologians do. You know, we are supposed to, in the hymn, join with all nature in manifold witness. I mean, these new worship hymns that Graham Kenrick and all these guys, they have the trees clapping their hands. And, and they think, I'm weird because I think the birds are singing songs of praise to God. I, 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 when I look at a tree and it's, they're clapping their hands. Come on. <laughs> but I believe in that everything that was created was created for the glory of God. You know, I hear people, I remember as a kid, you probably got the same message in the Baptist Sunday School. Look at the stars. Go out some night and look at the stars. How magnificent they are. Do you realize God created all of this for our enjoyment? Wrong. That's not what the Bible says. The heavens were created to declare the glory of God. That's what it says in the book. The problem with fundamentalists is after they prove the Bible inerrant, they don't believe what it says. <laughs> there it is. There it is. I mean, I could go through the scripture, but most of all, here's the task of the church. Eighth chapter of Romans. All of creation groans and is travail. I was talking to one of the students at my university, Eastern, who is uh, a biology major. And he points out to me that if you go into a forest, you'll hear all kinds of sounds, the bugs buzzing and the birds chirping. All of nature sings. It sings in a minor key. And I say, when Christ returns, the minor key, which is the key of sadness, will be no more. And all of nature will be singing in a major key, joyfully unto the Lord. My theology about animals and nature itself is crucial. Leslie White, one of the great critics of the church in the world of, uh, of philosophy and sociology, blamed Calvinism for the devastation of the planet for the environmental disaster we're facing. Because we, in the Calvinistic tradition, we're told that God gave human beings domination over nature, all the animals. We were to dominate. And for us, dominate means we can do what we want. We can dominate nature. That word would be better translated to be responsible for nature. And St. Francis of Assisi contributes to my theology of animals because he calls upon me to live in harmony with nature. That is the theology that the church needs. A theology that will teach its people how to live in harmony with nature. And if we don't learn to live in harmony with nature, we know what the forecasts are. We're going to destroy this planet. I came over here to the United Kingdom earlier this week and landed here on Tuesday because I wanted to cool off. Philadelphia's hot. It's hotter in London than it is in Philadelphia. <laughs> and you say, you look around and you say, and somebody says, there is no global warming. How hot does it have to get before you <laughs> catch the message? And we know that the rivers are polluted. I don't know that you're ready to go down to the Thames and drink <laughs> a cup of water out of the Thames. I mean, we've polluted our rivers, we've polluted our air. If you go to China and you go to a city like Shanghai, you have to wear an ask mask because you'll, you'll poison yourself just breathing the air. 
What are we doing to this planet? We, we factory farm animals. We're worried about the antibiotics that are pumped into them. We're worried about um, the ineffectiveness of uh, antibiotics now because we're swallowing them every time we consume junk food. We, the, the impact on us is huge, isn't it? And you, and you know, uh, you headed up OASIS. I, I headed up an organization in the United States, the Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education. Everything you were doing or trying to do, that's what we were into. And because I'm older, we were doing it before you. <laughs> I don't think we did it as well as you do it. I really am proud of what you've accomplished in ministering in the name of Jesus in this country, in cities, working with people on the streets. It's been a wonderful story. We were doing the same thing. And uh, as we, we got all of this going, uh, we had to face the fact that God is at work. And we started a Christian Environmental Association because here's what it says in the eighth chapter of Romans, in light of all we're doing, all the messes we're creating, all the poisons we're putting in food, all the, and nobody's gonna argue that we're not putting poisons in food. Not even the people who sell the food will deny that there's, they're, they're poisoned. We, one of the projects we started and I think you probably did this too. In the Dominican Republic, we started a university which now has 15,000 students. And they have an agriculture school. And this is the church at work. We have taught the farmers that are there in that school. It's the only really solid agricultural school in the country. And its farmers are coming over from Haiti to be there. How to fertilize your field without using chemicals. If you were to go into uh, one of the fields of our experimental farms, you would say, why don't they weed this place? There's weeds growing up all over. And the uh, agronomist will tell you, you see that weed? That drives off a certain beetle. Do you see that particular growth? That gets all of these. And, and then we grow a lot of rabbits, and we use their waste material. I mean, we are farming effectively and the, we got into it not because we wanted to be so spiritually responsible. We got into it because the poor farmers in the Dominican and Haiti can't afford fertilizer. So we had to come up with natural fertilizers. And lo, it's healthier and change, it's better. Yeah, change the system. So I'm going to ask you one last question as we finish. But what, what I want you to uh, do is see Daryl, who's going to be stood over there for that conference next March, where we're going to, Tony and others are going to explore animal theology and our whole responsibility for the whole of creation. But here's my last question to you, Tony, as we finish. Can I quote a verse? Yeah. Romans, 8th chapter, 16th verse. All of creation, listen to this, is suffering is in travail. I mean, that's what I've been talking about, what we've done to nature. It's suffering and is in travail. The next word is what? Waiting. Say, so waiting what? For the second coming? No, not waiting for the second coming. Waiting for the sons and the daughters of God to deliver it. There is a missionary calling we haven't paid attention to, to be the agents of God to deliver nature the animals, the plants, from what sin has done to it. Hmm. It's part of our calling. 
we got to think much more holistically about all we do. In closing, Tony, tell us either about the worst sermon you ever preached or the best one you ever preached. Let me do the worst. Some guy in Wilmington, Delaware, during the 60s, decided that he was going to do something to reach the countercultural people of the 60s. I don't know. We have enough people here who are old enough to remember the 60s. It was wild. So he rented this farm, and there was a sloping hill that came down to a farmhouse and a huge porch on the on the farmhouse. And he devised this system that he would put on a program there on the stage, on, the, on that platform, and he would get the counterculture people to come and sit on this slope. Great idea. I had earned a reputation in Philadelphia, not Wilmington, Delaware, of being the leader of the anti-war movement the Vietnam War, staged demonstrations against the war. So I had become kind of a countercultural hero in Philadelphia. People in Wilmington didn't know anything about me. But he invited me down to speak against the war and to talk about the environment. So I go down there. Well, I don't know what these people were expecting but they were, on, they were already smoking the weeds. Got the picture? There's about 1,500 of them on this hillside, and they're puffing away. And you see kids necking, making it out, you know. I mean, this is great. So I get up, and, uh, and uh, he, the guy gives me a guitar and says, sing one of your protest songs. So he's, I shouldn't have even tried. I started to sing a protest song, you know, an anti-war song. People started booing. <laughs> you know, they're hissing. And I'm trying to talk. And the guy, the guy who set this thing up is sitting behind me. And he's saying, you're not going over. You're not going over. You know, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm doing the best I can. And the people are hissing. Divine inspiration. I said, you can see I'm not very good at this music stuff. Did anybody here bring in a guitar? Well, about 15 people. I said, could you come up here? And uh, I wanted, want you to take turns leading us in, in song. So they came up. The guy, first guy's got up there with the guitar. Peggy is sitting right in the front. She's horrified at the situation. I point to her. I say, go to the car. So she gets up and she goes to the car. While these guys are singing on the stage, <laughs> I go in the farm door. I go in the door of the house, out the back door, jumped in the car, and drove away. <laughs> Nobody got saved that night. <laughs> Tony, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tony Campolo.